0: and welcome to episode 34 of Farmerama.
1: This month, we first hear from a self-confessed non-environmentalist about an ocean-based farming solution that might inadvertently be saving the environment, as well as providing a simple, new and sensible option for people wanting to make a living from the sea.
0: In Northern Ireland, we get stuck into the very important issue of mental health in farming.
1: We get the lowdown on plants activating genes and how this relates to seed saving.
0: And we end with a farmer in the remote south of Chile telling us about the importance of community and how we can contribute to what he calls circle agriculture.
1: Bren Smith is executive director and co-founder of Green a fisherman run organization focused on 3D ocean farming of kelp. Their polyculture vertical farming system grows a mix of seaweeds and shellfish that requires zero inputs while sequestering carbon and rebuilding reef ecosystems.
2: So my, my name is Bren Smith, I'm owner of Thimble Island Ocean Farm, and I'm a 3D ocean farmer. So think of polyculture out, out to sea. You know, I was born and raised up in Newfoundland, Canada, and dropped out of high school when I was 14 and headed out to become a commercial fisherman. I fished, you know, Gloucester, Grand Banks, George's Banks, tuna, lobster, and then I headed to the Bering Sea where I f- fished cod and crab. You know, that was the height of industrialized Fishing, uh, it's what we know that was, it was, uh, you know, ecologically unsustainable and it was doomed in terms of, uh, creating a, you know, good, um, living for, for those of us that want to spend our lives on the, lives on the ocean. So then I went to the aquaculture farms, the salmon farms to try that because that was supposed to be the answer to overfishing. But instead it was still an industrial model of polluting, of not, um, uh, you know, uh, protecting and, and caretaking for our oceans and creating a really new vibrant, uh, food supply. And so I left sort of disillusioned from the aquaculture sector and then I headed and remade myself as, at the beginning, an oyster farmer down in Long Island Sound. And that was about 15 years ago and that was the start of all this. You know, I'm not really an environmentalist. You know, I grew up, uh, supporting the seal hunts as a kid, you know, these were, this was a way of, a way of life. And I really think of the ocean as a place that I can, you know, die on my boat one day, I can have a self-directed life, I can have the pride of helping feed my country, I can have something to pass on to my kids. The interesting thing is, is that we're in a time where the choice between jobs and economic development and Um, ecological restoration. It's not a choice. It's, it's a false choice that we have to pick one or the other to, like, I need to help restore the seas in order to make a living, even though I'm not a foodie. You know, I eat at gas stations and McDonald's and stuff like that. I'm just a working class kid and I still love the fish switch sandwich and I don't come at this from an environmental perspective. It's a, it's now a tent, this, this food farming. Um sector sort of takes all types. And I think we're gathering around a, uh, a common vision of, of, of restoration, of feeding local communities and really trying to figure out what would a new sort of climate farming and climate cuisine uh, look like in the next 50 years. You know, why are we growing around a wild industrial palate? Like we're trying to grow salmons and tunas, things that people want to eat. Uh, based on a wa- originally a wild fishery, and why aren't we asking the oceans, what does it make sense to grow? You know, imagine an underwater, uh, garden, and really what we have is hurricane-proof anchors on the sort of edges of the farm, and then just some simple rope scaffolding down below. And from there we grow All sorts of different species we grow, you know, seaweeds and shellfish. So we have kelps, we've got gracilarias, we have oysters, scallops, mussels, clams. We even harvest salt from those uh, grounds. And the way we pick the species is we only do zero input species. Because the brilliant thing about the ocean is two things. One is we don't really have to fight gravity. So we're able to build these very simple architectures under, under the ocean. And there are all these creatures we don't have to... Feed. So no freshwater, no feed, no fertilizer, and of course no land, making it the most sustainable food uh, on the, on the planet. That's one of the unique things about the farming system we've all come up with is that it's highly replicable and it takes minimal capital costs. Think of it as sort of the nail salon model of the ocean. If you have 20 acres in a boat and $20,000, you can start up your own Farm and that's been the key to replication, uh, kind of these the, uh, uh, a a simple, affordable design, so everyday regular people like me uh, uh, can can do this. And what's interesting on the commercial side is we've started with you know shellfish and then particularly a sugar kelp, and it's because it's one of the fastest growing plants on earth. It goes in post hurricane season. Um, uh, we're able to just grow huge quantities in short periods of time, and it's a it's a winter crop, so it's off season for a lot of fishermen, which is good. Um, uh, but. It's, it, I see that just as the beginning. You know, there are thousands of edible plants in the ocean, hundreds of kinds of shellfish. There is something we can grow all over the globe. So kelp is sort of the, for us, the gateway drug in the beginning of this whole new polyculture, um, uh, regime that we can go out and, you know, imagine being a chef and finding out there are, you know, corns, arugulas, tomatoes, kales that you've never seen before. You've never tasted before. What, what we have is Green Wave, which is a nonprofit. And that's that's meant to really train the new generation of ocean farmers. And we have requests to start farms in every coastal state in North America and 20 countries around the world. We, we have, I think we have over 100 farmers in England alone that want to start their own farms. The demand is just huge. Uh, a lot of actually young land-based farmers, men and women who can't afford land-based, you know, land out on, in the water. It's, for us, it's only $50 an acre a year. So they're able to come in and reimagine themselves as ocean farmers. So there's something we can grow everywhere. Some places it'll take some initial research, um, in order to figure out what's economically viable and what's, what's delicious. It basically you you put up twenty thousand dollars. there's about thirty thousand dollars. You know of in, of initial startup costs. It's about thirty five thousand dollars to of um fixed costs year to year to keep the farm going. Because you can do anywhere from you know ten to twenty uh tons of seaweed per acre. Um uh, we're actually able to make it profitable. It, generally, it's two full two full time jobs, five to seven part time jobs during um. Uh, intense seasonal work and then and it's a it's a net for the farmer between a hundred and hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's just the crops because we don't have to feed them it's sheep, you know <laughs> it's just rope, some acres and picking the right crops it really shifts the economics of it.
0: Now another check-in with Johnny Hansen at Jubilee Farm in Northern Ireland. Here Johnny is speaking to his wife Paula fellow Jubilee director. She is a trainee counsellor and the two of them discuss the intersection of mental health, well-being, and farming. There is a bit of wind noise in this recording so we apologise for that.
3: One of the things that we're seeking to set up at Jubilee Farm is a care farming programme and care farming works on the premise that time spent on a farm working with people, animals, plants and the soil is good for us, good for body, good for mind and good for souls but if care farming uses farming to take care of vulnerable groups in society including those with mental health problems what about taking care of farmers themselves particularly with regards to their mental health and well-being well to answer that question this month i'm joined by paula hansen who is my fellow Jubilee co-founder, director and better half. But she's also a trainee counsellor. And Paula and I are no stranger to mental health problems. Paula has had ME for 15 years and both of us have faced the challenges, the mental health challenges in particular, of dealing and coping with long-term chronic illness. So Paula, what are some of the challenges facing mental health in for, amongst farmers but also in farming communities and families
4: hi thanks johnny um yes i think as a society we're beginning to become more aware of the importance of our mental health and how that impacts our lives but uh, there seems to be a lag in the agricultural sector um in a recent study the office for Nat- national statistics found that more than one agricultural worker a week in the uk dies by suicide And uh, the levels of depression seem to be increasing in the sector also. In fact, they went on to say that figures show that the risk to suicide among agricultural roles, such as harvesting crops and rearing animals, are almost twice the national average in the UK. And I just feel that this is just unacceptable and we really need to start having more dialogue about what's going on. So I think one of the um, some of the problems around this are that there seems to still be a stigma around mental health and talking about it within our agricultural um, uh, communities, which further increases our isolation. And even by the nature of the work, working anti-social hours, often working alone, and it's hard, arduous physical work often also, which we, we also recognise that our physical um, well-being impacts our mental health also. But there are also very real financial stresses and pressures on farming communities, um, whether it be the increase in feed or fuel prices, or supermarket prices affecting it, or um, the weather. This can add to the overwhelming feeling of stress that our farmers and farming families are under at the moment.
3: Finding farming stressful is is something we've had experience of recently setting up Jubilee Farm and and particularly in the last few months the lease we were seeking on our first choice site that we've been working towards for a number of years has fallen through unexpectedly and we've been scrambling to find an alternative site at, at short notice and that has proved to be phenomenally stressful at times. So Paula, based on that recent lived experience in the Hansen household, but also your your practice as a counsellor, what are some of the solutions then to the mental health crisis in farming?
0: Yeah,
4: well, um, since I've, I've mentioned suicide, I think it's really important that um, I just highlight that if you are in that uh, very low point, uh, that there are organisations like Lifeline and the Smartons that you can contact. Um, with their helplines on a 24-7 basis and it's really important to do that. But equally, just finding someone t- and tell them how you're feeling and being open about your, um, where you're at. You can also visit your GP um, because your mental health really and truly matters. But simple things that we can all do to improve our well-being and lower our um, levels of depression can be just taking time, even 30 minutes a day of self-care And that can be simple, like going for a walk or doing something that makes you feel good about yourself. Um, But there are also other organisations and charities, like in the UK we have Farming Community Network um, and in Northern Ireland we have the Rural Support Initiative that help support farmers and farming communities, whether it be through financial advice or um, support or linking them in with places where they can help their mental health. Um, So yes, it's all about being real and talking more about how you're feeling.
3: There's lots of food for thought, Paula, there for all of us, as we seek to improve mental health in farming communities. And just on a personal note from Jubilee Farm, we've found that if life gives you lemons, then make lemonade. And as a result of having to move from our site this summer, we hope to rent and then buy, via community shares, the first community-owned farm in Northern Ireland. So do stay tuned to Farmerama in future episodes for more news on that. And so finally from Paula and myself at Jubilee Farm, this month we're wishing you good mental health or as we say in Irish, sláinte.
1: This is a subject we've wanted to cover for a long time. So thank you to Paula and Johnny for what I think is a quite important report.
0: We hope you enjoy listening to Farmarama as much as we enjoy making it. A lot of work goes into each episode, so we're always really grateful for support. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, or if you know someone you think might be, please do get in touch with us through our website, farmarama.co. Marco Bencian farms with his family at Fundo Laguna Blanca in the 8th region in Chile. He lives under the watch of two volcanoes, one still active. The landscape is incredibly lush, a real feast for the eyes.
1: Marco is a regenerative farmer working with permaculture, fostering the native forests and building soils with animals. This sanctuary is something Marco wants to share And here he tells us about the importance of community and opportunities to get involved.
5: My name is Marco Benzin, 33 years old, Um, farmer from Germany, Cologne. And now we stay here in Fundo Laguna Blanca in the south of Chile in the ninth region, Araucania, And we are on 1,000 meters about sea level and from 106 kilometers from the next town, Timuco. For me farming here is a lifestyle and so for me it's a big big life quality to have trees uh, in front of my window cows grazing and to see what i did in the in the 10 year or the last 10 years here Um, because it's not the same to come into some place and have uh, a lot of a lot of money perhaps and do everything with machines or other companies or people if you turn around every stone and you know what you did there is some kind of peace in you because you 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 made where you are living now and for me it's very important that every morning when i stand up i don't think in in earning money or going forward so fast or have so much success is a part of the life too but i'm thinking it to also I I love what I do every day and there are some days bad days or some holes or downs I don't, I don't know how I can call it um, but uh, more in the most um, situations I I love what I do and I want to do it um, and I have some kind of identification with it and I I hope so there are much more people to have this situation because I know a lot of people working in this places only for their salary and for to get forward with with what they are doing with their family Mm -hmm. today we don't see so much because we are in the clouds but uh, we are situated here in our lodge where we have uh, about 25 beds or about 10 or 12 rooms Um, I came here 10 years ago with my family with a tent with some uh, work tools a generator and uh, built the first house for to have a base and then with the years we built the water system a road system some houses um, some barns for to have some base for this um developing of this um, sustainable project um, for me it was very important because in germany we are uh, was connected with a uh, civilization and infrastructure with light and water and everything and today i know what it means to have one 1 liter of water or to have power from in in the house to have light to have light and it was for me personally a very very good experience to to learn about our resources and um, what we also do in this moment, this is the next step, is to build some soils um, between our native forests where we want to make some future forest. So we don't plant like it's normally in Chile, Eucalyptus and, and Pino. We only plant native uh, arboles, um, um trees. <laughs> um, and so we think in 10 or 15 years we can have... More water here, like it was 100 years before, there will come back the animals. And between these forests, we uh, clear some some fields where we have some deadwood and bamboo and stones for to have some uh, fields for our animals and our agriculture in the same way they're helping us like fire cuts the farmers um from organic or traditional it's it's not we i want to don't want to make there a difference all what we we are working with the soil and we are working with animals and we are working for the this food system in this world we have to build a a, a bigger community i'm a i'm a, i'm of my my opinion is organic farming but i can understand also people who can change so so fast so i think it's it's very important that we have more communication and see what are our results and what is my wish in it there are much more connection between the people and not only frustration because there is a big industry or there is a client who don't want to buy or everything I, i i my wish is much more communication much more community between the farmers and so I think we have a, a good way for the future. Circle agriculture for me is a little bit like the old way, but in, in a modern way too. And so I mean to have everything what normally a farm had 50 or 100 years ago. Like we have horses, uh, pigs, sheep, goats, uh, cows um we make oh uh, o- we have we we seed oats we have a project with quinoa we have birds um with eggs we have um a sale shop and we have um, uh, f- um fruit uh, mm-hmm. fruits vegetables. And so what I mean with circle agriculture is when that we can have everything, but in every area we have another person to concentrate on it. Um, yeah, what we need or what I want to do is like uh, community farming. So the idea is we have some model in Germany called Change Campo. It's a cooperative. What, uh, is w- what the idea is that we have some people working together have their own spaces like with the animals or with the fields or the forest or everything in in the same moment they are owner of the thing because they can be part of it and in another way they work in in their area um, where they want to work so we can do some circle agriculture we can do a lot of things but we have in every every workspace another person who is um, a specialist, what what I can say, and then we can concentrate us on these different things and can something great together. So everybody who is interested and to to speak about these options can contact me.
0: We first heard from Joel Williams of Integrated Soils back in episode 28, where he told us how he fell in love with soil. We caught up with Joel again at last month's Future of UK Farming conference, put on by the Sustainable Food Trust.
1: Here's Joel to fill us in on how plants turn on certain genes, how this relates to seed saving, and just how important mycorrhizae are as a plant's communication channel
6: my name is Joel Williams from Integrated Soils and I am an educator uh, particularly around soil health and I do some consulting and advisory work for farmers but I'm mostly involved in uh, extension and sharing of information and knowledge plants are an expression of their environment uh, the soils chemical physical and biological characteristics and the and the other climatic and weather and, uh, factors All of those um, factors are triggers that stimulate the expression of certain genes that up or down regulate certain genes. Therefore, the plant is a product of its environment. And the more that uh, that plant, or as that plant grows dr- through that season, it's turning on the certain genes that it requires to survive that environment, based on maybe the pathogen loads, insects, other temperature triggers, etc. And so, therefore, the, gen- the the plant turns on all of those genes that it requires during that growing season. And when the plant then moves into reproduction and starts to produce seed, uh, it is sending those, uh, it is carrying on those genes um, into the seed in a more upregulated state, you could say, so that um, when the future uh, progeny of that plant, uh, when that seed germinates, that plant will have those genes in a more activated state which then means that that future uh, child of the plant um, is in a way more adapted to that environment because it's already been told what genes you need to activate straight away and therefore that future plant, um, the future child is um, very adapted to that environment. And therefore this is one of the reasons that farmers definitely should be saving seed a lot more Because um, as we're now discovering as we we open up this vast world of the soil microbiome and link that to the plant genome and then all of these gene-to-gene conversations that are happening between plants and microbes we are understanding that um, these uh, triggers and these nuances are ac- actually extremely uh, infinite and they are unique to each and every different soil type. So by growing your plants, and so by saving your seeds grown in your soils, you are selecting and carrying on the genes that those plants require specifically in relation to your very ultra-local soil type. And that's the reason that farmers should be saving more and more seed and doing that year after year uh, and actually strengthening and selecting for the genes that are required in their future um, varieties and breeds, etc. We now are uncovering that plants absolutely communicate, not only do they share resources through mycorrhizal fungi, they absolutely also communicate to each other. And uh, there's quite a well-known study that was uh, done with tomatoes. And it would grow uh, some tomatoes side by side in the same soil, but the, the tomato plants were enclosed in a, um, in a bubble, in a, in a barrier, that therefore meaning, meant that they, the tomatoes were not sharing airspace. Um, but However, under the soil, their roots were uh, indeed in contact with each other. And we know that plants release all sorts of volatile stress um, compounds, signalling molecules that uh, they can communicate through the air through those volatile compounds. But the point of putting that barrier, um, that little glass, the bubble over the tomatoes, meant that we restricted that sharing of airspace. And then what we did, what the researchers did, to uh, the half of the treatment was infected with blight, uh, with tomato blight and they found that the neighboring tomato plant uh, was then it turned on its immune system it activated specifically 6 d- genes that are associated with the defense systems of the plant and they determined that actually it was the uh, stressed, uh, infected plant that was sending a signalling molecule down to the root system, giving that to the mycorrhizal fungi. The mycorrhizal fungi was carrying that through the soil and then passing that on to the other tomato plant, to then, which it turned on its immune system. So plants we now know absolutely can not only communicate through the air, but also communicate through the mycorrhizal fungal bridge. And and it emphasises, therefore, how important that mycorrhizal bridge is when it's not there. If we didn't have mycorrhizal fungi there, of course those tomatoes would not have been able to carry that message across. Mm -hmm. One of the other interesting things we also have uh, identified is that Uh, plants can pass on immunity to their progeny through that seed when they are exposed to and challenged by particularly by pathogens so if a plant is exposed to a pathogen it uh, receives that signal that trigger that the pathogen is there the plant will turn on its immune system to fight off that pathogen and in doing that Uh, It can also then transfer immunity into the seed for the future uh, progeny that uh, actually then has an inherent and inbuilt immunity already in it. We, the research has shown that that is only passed on for one generation. It's not that then that child can pass it on to its next one. So that, that next child would have to then be exposed to that pathogen again to then carry that across. But nonetheless, it does um, add to that, that point we were t- discussing earlier about seeds transferring, plants transferring the right genes required for their environments um, into, their, into their seeds. And so even on that point from yeah, disease, disease pressure and disease management, it's um, a really important reason why um, farmers should be saving their seed.
0: Thanks, Joel. You can also tune into our short this month to hear from Pasture for Life farmer Rob Havard, who is also at the Future of UK Farming Conference. He tells us some clever tips on how to harvest your own seeds for planting herbal lays and how he has been experimenting with terminating herbal lays, working solely with his animals.
1: This show was produced by me, I'm Joe Barrett, Abby Rose and Katie Revel. Additional reporting from Johnny Hansen at Jubilee Farm. Thank you to Annie Landless for doing a sterling job of keeping everyone informed on social media. Music for Mama is made by Owen
0: Barrett. Toodaloo!